morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. Welcome to Sunday morning worship gathering on YouTube and Facebook. Of course, we are always happy to see you here on these channels. Uh, We'd love to see you comment, say hello, encourage each other, and greet each other in fellowship, even in the chat box on YouTube or the comment boxes on Facebook. It's really wonderful to see you connecting with each other, and it's really wonderful when we have the opportunity to say hello. It has been quite a week in the United States of America. It's been a tough week, I'll be honest, for me. I was so looking forward to Epiphany this year. It's one of my favorite holidays of the Christmas tide season because on Epiphany, which is of course the 6th of January, it was Wednesday of this week, this is when we celebrate the revealing of Christ to the Gentiles in the amazing story of the Magi or the wise men who visit the child Jesus after following a star that shines brightly in the night over Bethlehem and leads them on a two-year journey to discover the truth of who Jesus is. Well, this year, as you know, our epiphany in the United States was disrupted by a traumatic series of events that still has me reeling and grieving. And after speaking to some of you this week, I know it has been a hard week for you as well. Maybe even uh, almost as hard as the events in our nation's capital on Wednesday were the quick calls immediately afterwards for us to heal as a nation, to put the President of the United States who is leaving office behind us and embrace a new day to forgive, be reconciled, and to unite as a country and move forward. This is troubling to me because the problem, of course, is that for the past four years, a large number of Americans in the United States have been continually abused, traumatized, and gaslighted by people in this country who have told them that Everything that they were seeing with their eyes and hearing with their ears just wasn't true. We aren't a nation that struggles with systemic racism. We aren't a nation that has a creeping fascism that is growing in major sectors of our society everywhere. We aren't a nation that is experiencing the kind of destruction and erosion of our civic institutions that appears to be happening. But no, none of that is really true. All of that is just over-exaggerated. And the idea of being reconciled or united with people who have been pushing that narrative is is actually a kind of re-traumatizing. If we are going to enter back into unified relationships as a nation, then first real work for healing has to be done. And so, What I want to do over the next several weeks is talk a little bit about what a genuine process of healing looks like. My concern is that we as a church and we as a nation would rush past some of the necessary steps in any good process of healing and reconciliation, and that in doing so, we would simply bandage over the very deep, very real wounds that we have as a country. And so instead of that, I want us to explore the steps that are tried and true, steps that have been proven 
to bring healing and forgiveness and reconciliation into relationships, one-on-one -on -one relationships, family relationships, and even a process that has been used at the national level in countries around the world to bring genuine healing and genuine reconciliation. I think it's important we do this because if we are going to heal as a country, if we're going to heal in our communities, I think it's important that we know the cost. I think it's important that we understand what will be required as we move forward. And of course, I think it's also important that we embrace that process, however difficult it might be, because it is an expression of the Christian gospel. And so today, I wanna to start by looking at the first foundational thing that needs to be put into place if we're gonna move forward and find genuine healing in our communities, uh, genuine healing in our families, and genuine healing in our nation. And actually, believe it or not, that first foundational concept is found in the story of the Magi, the story of the three kings who visit the child Jesus that we find in Matthew chapter two. But before we read that passage together, I wanna invite you as always to just center your hearts and your minds on what we're here to do and pray with me. Would you join me? God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to gather and to turn our hearts and our minds to you, to open up scripture and allow it to speak to us, allow it to shine a light in the darkness that exists in our hearts, the darkness that exists in our communities. And as citizens of this country, we ask that you would use it to help us shine a light in the darkness that exists here in the United States, that you would make us a people who are able to see by your light and expose what needs to be revealed. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our story today, as I mentioned, is in Matthew chapter 2. If you turn there in your Bibles, you'll see uh, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 2 that we have the beginning of the story of the visit of the wise men. But I'm actually not going to read through that part of the story. What's really interesting to me about the story of the wise men or the magi is that we have this extended narrative, this really fantastic narrative of these three kings or three wise men, uh, very likely practitioners of an Eastern religion who have come the, from the area of Persia. Essentially, they are astrologers who have recognized signs in the heavens, and so they've come to pay homage to the child Christ, the Jewish Messiah in the person of Jesus. And we have that story uh, from verse 1 all the way through verse 12. And then, of course, we have the story of Jesus and his family escaping into Egypt because what's happening in this story, the, the real drama here is that Herod is jealous because he has heard the rumblings that there is a Messiah, a king of the Jews who's been born. And so Herod takes this seriously and seeks to kill this child. And so he enlists the support of the three wise men or the Magi. And what I wanna do is pick it up there in verse 13. We're gonna read verse 13 through verse 18, which is really the middle of the story. It skips past that sort of famous nativity scene from Christmas, and it jumps into a really grim and dark part of the story that I think is useful for us today as we enter into this journey of exploring what it means to be healed and reconciled together as a people who've experienced hurt and trauma. Verse 13 begins with this. Now, after they had left, 
that is, after the wise men or the magi had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. So, of course, we have right here in this part of the story uh, something that, that should sound familiar to a lot of us. We essentially have the holy family, Christ and his mother and father, fleeing to another country because they're afraid for their lives. So they literally become refugees. They travel all the way to Egypt, and they live in Egypt for the first few years of Jesus' life, or really... Uh, for the first few years after he's about two years old. Jesus would have been about two years old when the Magi visited him. So early in childhood, Jesus actually grows up in Egypt, and that happens because they're fleeing from the violence of Herod. That leads us to the portion that's really important for us today. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, we pick up the story there, and it says this, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. And this is, I think, just an achingly beautiful quote from the prophet Jeremiah that we find dropped into the middle of what is really traditionally a kind of Christmas story. This isn't a part of the story that we see in any of our nativity scenes. But it really is an important part of the story because what's happening here is not just this sort of grim and gruesome aside. What we have here is at the very heart of the story of hope, the story of potential redemption, the story of potential healing for the people of Israel who are suffering under the yoke of the Romans. We have this quote from an earlier story from the prophet Jeremiah. And this quote from the prophet Jeremiah helps to give emotional weight and emotional resonance to what has happened here in the middle of this Christmas story. Now, stop for a moment and consider this, that Jesus is the incarnated Christ. Jesus is God made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And in the midst of this incredibly hopeful scene, in the midst of Jesus's birth and being born and the shepherds and the angels and the proclamations of glory and gospel. And then Jesus growing up for two years and then being visited by the Magi, these astrologers, these wise men from Persia in the East and being bestowed these gifts. All of this symbology of, or symbolism of hope, all of this symbolism of rescue, all of this symbolism of coming out of exile in the wilderness is right there in the Christmas story. But there is a cost to it, and the cost of that, of course, is the backlash of the ruling powers represented by Herod, who having heard that there was a challenge to their authority, 
who having heard that there was a challenge to the throne, a challenge to the power that Herod enjoyed, unleashes this devastating campaign to slaughter all of the children in and around Bethlehem who are two years old and younger. Right there alongside the story of hopefulness, the story of potential rescue and redemption, right alongside that is this story of death and tragedy and injustice. And why I think this quote is so effective from the prophet Jeremiah is because it so powerfully captures the aching grief that the mothers and fathers in and around Jerusalem and in Bethlehem, rather, would have felt. And I love the way the prophet Jeremiah puts it. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. This quote, by the way, comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. If you turn there in your Bible, you're going to see something really interesting because Jeremiah chapter 31, in your Bible, it might have a title right there at the beginning of it like it does in my Bible. In my Bible, the title of this chapter is A Joyful Return of the Exiles. And just like the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 22, Jeremiah is a story of hope. It's a story of expected redemption. It's a story of exiles being called in from the wilderness. It begins this way. At that time, Jeremiah 31 verse 1, at that time says the Lord, I will be the God of all my families of Israel and they shall be my people. And thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Jeremiah goes on in this chapter to sort of unpack very poetically this this kind of song of healing, this song of restoration, this song of joy for the Israelites who at this time have been exiled, not under the yoke of Roman rule, but who have been exiled in Babylon. So again, we have a story of a people suffering, hurt, traumatized, and the prophet speaking on behalf of God, calling out with promises of return and redemption and healing and joy. And just like the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2, right in the middle of it, right in the middle of this chapter of joy, Jeremiah drops this in verse 15. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, what the prophet here is doing is the same thing that Matthew does with his gospel. He takes this hope, this expectation of redemption, and right in the middle of it, he drops in this familiar story of grief, of loss, and of lamenting. And the purpose of this in the story is to remind us that the hope that seems so promising, that the redemption that we long for, grows out of a very deep trauma, a very deep sorrow, a a deep sadness. 
an incredible loss. The Rachel, of course, that both of these passages are referring to, both Matthew 2 and Jeremiah 31, they both refer to an even older story from Genesis. This is the story of Joseph, who's betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt and disappears and goes off. This is a reference to Joseph's mother wailing and weeping and crying because she has lost Joseph, her son, who is literally, she thinks, no more. And as a result of that loss, and this is the part that I think is important for us today, as a result of that deep woundedness, that deep, incredible grief, both passages tell us that Rachel refuses to be consoled. Now, I think that one phrase is incredibly important. Because I think too often when people experience grief and they experience trauma and they experience loss, we have a tendency for, for a solution to that grief to come quickly. I think we have a tendency to expect people who have been hurt and wounded and lost, whether it's lost a person or lost a dream or lost confidence or trust in a cherished and beloved ideal or institution or whatever represented hope in their lives when people experience grief and loss, we want them to get over it as quickly as possible. This is, I think, partly a very American problem. We're such a solutions and productivity-oriented society that when, when we experience depression or sorrow or loss, we want to we wanna move past that as quickly as we possibly can, and we often expect that from others as well. But it's not just, I think, that we are so given over to being productive and solutions-oriented that we want people to move on. I think very often when we have been a part of hurting other people, we want them to move on so that we don't have to face our complicity in the trauma that they're experiencing. And in facing that reality that we want people to move on from their grief very quickly, I think this passage from Jeremiah 31 is a very helpful corrective. And in fact, I think we're so stuck in this idea that we should move on from our grief as quickly as possible, that it's very likely that people, especially Americans, would read this passage as a kind of condemnation of Rachel. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled. Why would Rachel refuse to be consoled? Doesn't that mean that she's stubborn? Doesn't that mean she doesn't want to heal? Doesn't that mean she doesn't want to be reconciled? Well, I think what it means is that Rachel understands that her lost son deserves to be grieved. Rachel understands that grief must be given its full expression before she can ever move on to a place of healing. You know, there's a, a kind of cliche around grief that you know, there are five stages of grief that we have to go through all of those five stages. This is first, you know, uh, popularized by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who said that grief involved these sort of predictable five stages that we all have to go through. Those stages include uh, denial and bargaining and anger uh, and coming to terms with 
the grief eventually. All of these sort of stages and steps that we can go through that help us to process our grief again in a productive way. And I think this notion of the stages of grief is helpful in some ways because at the very least, it helps us to realize that there is a process to our grief. That when we've experienced pain and trauma and suffering and loss, that we do have to go through a process before we can reach the final stage of acceptance. But even that, I think, is a bit problematic because we tend to be impatient with how people travel through those stages of grief. We, we tend to not have much, uh, much patience, especially for anger, when people are in the anger stage of their grief. And the reality is, of course, now that we know that not everybody processes their grief in a linear way. Not everybody even goes through the five stages of grief the way we tend to think about it in that way. A, a more helpful model for grief that researchers have more recently uncovered is that grief can be thought of as a dual process model, that our grief runs sort of on two tracks. And one of those tracks is a process that's called activities of loss. These are all the things that we do with our bodies to process the loss that we've experienced. And activities of loss include everything like from crying and wailing and shouting to refusing to be restored and refusing to engage in a restoration and healing. It's important to understand that as we're grieving, activities of loss are an incredibly instrumental way for our bodies to give voice to the pain that we feel inside. And the other track of that grief in this sort of dual process of grief model is activities of restoration. Activities of restoration include things like finding new roles in your family that has experienced loss or finding a new uh, way to express yourself at work in spite of that loss or finding new relational connections beyond those who are somehow connected to the loss. There are all different ways that we begin to heal by renegotiating our lives after a trauma. But here's the really important insight of the dual process model. People don't simply process their loss on the one hand and then move on to restoration and healing on the other. What we now know is that when we are experiencing grief and pain and trauma, that we tend to oscillate between those two processes. Sometimes we express that loss. Sometimes we cry and wail and weep and isolate ourselves and keep ourselves away from those who insist on healing. And then we may switch over to activities of healing and engage in that sort of restoration of our hearts and our minds again and our relationships again. And then we may switch back for a time to more crying and weeping and isolation and that sort of model explains how people tend to go back and forth in their grief. That there is no quick moving on to healing and restoration without giving full voice, full expression to the grief and the trauma that we feel. Rachel wept for her children and she refused to be consoled. This I think is the first sort of foundational reality of becoming a person or a family 
or a congregation or a community or a nation that can pursue healing is that before we can even talk about restoration, before we can even talk about being unified again, we must first spend time refusing to be consoled. We must first spend time giving full expression, full voice, full activity to our grief. Now, in religious traditions, we actually have liturgies for doing this. There's an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations, which is nothing but poems of grief and loss. Liturgical songs and expressions of a people who are beaten and battered and traumatized and sick and tired of being beaten and battered and traumatized. And so they give voice to those expressions of grief in their worship. Sometimes Lamentations takes on the character of shaking one's fist before God because we don't understand why God would allow such things to happen. One of the things I love about the Oceanside Sanctuary, one of the things I love about being a part of this congregation is that we have always made space for lamenting. One of the things that we often do at our church, for example, is anytime there's a mass shooting in the United States, the very next Sunday when we gather, We light a candle for every victim of the mass shooting. And we spend time reading prayers of lament and expressing our grief around that national trauma. But this week, as we have experienced several national traumas, I find us in the really odd space of meeting entirely virtually. I can't invite you in the sanctuary to come forward and light candles as an expression of grief and loss and sadness for the events that happened this week in Washington, D.C. But here's what I think we can do. I think just because we're meeting virtually doesn't mean that we can't give space to our grief and give space to our lamenting. So what I want to invite you to do today and what I'd like to invite you to do this week is take some time to give expression to your grief for what's happening in our country, what is being revealed in the United States, and what is it that we're grieving? We're grieving, I think, so many things right now. We're grieving the continuing revelation of systemic racism as a reality in our society. We saw it this week on display in Washington, D.C. As white protesters literally were ushered through the gates of the Capitol grounds, given full access to to the nation's capital, occupied the floor of the House of Representatives and the Senate of the United States, and sat at desks of senators and congresspeople and put their feet up on desks with virtually no consequences whatsoever. If that is not an expression of systemic racism and white supremacy in the United States, I don't know what is. And related to that, we are seeing, I think, the unveiling of something that we talked about here in our Sunday gatherings last summer, and that is the revealing of nationalism in our country, and especially a Christian version of nationalism that seeks to align Christianity with the power of the state in order to suppress all other expressions in our country. 
And I think closely related to that, we're also seeing the unveiling of a growing and creeping authoritarianism. We are seeing more and more of our elected leaders who are more and more comfortable simply seizing power and expressing the will to power and doing their very best to subvert a democratic expression of power in this country. These are traumatizing times and traumatizing events, and they deserve the fullest expression of our grief. What I want to do today and this week is invite you to share in the comments how you are feeling emotionally about this week. I don't mean make an argument for your side of the political debate. I'm not inviting you to share the facts about what happened. What I'm asking you to do is give a voice to your emotions. I'm asking you to express your grief in whatever way feels productive and appropriate so that you can, for now, for a time, like Rachel, refuse to be consoled. And we could do that in a number of different ways, but one way I'm gonna do this is this week we created a blog post on the church website at OceansideSanctuary.org and that blog post is titled Lamenting America. And in that blog post uh, are some instructions for how you could express your grief if you would like to. And we're inviting you to do it a couple ways. Number one, we're inviting you to make some comments. You'll see a comment form at the bottom of that page. And we want to invite you to make whatever comments you would like to to express the emotions that you're processing at this time. The second thing that you could do is share with us an image uh, or a song by sharing a link in those comments to an image or a song that expresses the grief that you're feeling right now. And the third thing that you could do that we want to invite you to do is to call us at the church. We're going to put the number on the screen right now, but actually call us at the church and leave a voicemail giving expression to the grief and the emotions that you're experiencing this week. And what we'll do is we'll compile all of these expressions of our grief and our emotions and we'll post them on that webpage at the website so that we are compiling an expression of lament as we as people of faith, as followers of Christ, seek to take that first step of being healed to fully express the sadness and the lament that we have in response to what's going on. Now, we're gonna put some instructions up on the screen for how you do that. Instead of questions like I normally ask, this is what I'm inviting you to do. I'm inviting you to express your lament in response to everything that's going on by making comments on Facebook or YouTube or going to the church website and sharing your lament there so that we can all experience that together as a church. I hope that you are staying safe and healthy at home. I hope that you are blessed in spite of everything that's going on. Let's close in a word of prayer together as we end our worship today. God, we thank you so much for today. We ask that you would be with us in our expressions of lament and grief. And as we explore the steps that we can all take toward healing and restoration, we ask that you would give us the freedom and the courage to give full expression 
to our grief and our emotions in a way that is directed and offered to you so that we can begin to be healed when we're ready. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Online Gathering. My name is CJ, and I've got some announcements here for you this morning, and I wanted to film announcements this morning in front of our lemon tree, our little lemon tree that year after year kind of takes a beating from whether it's the ash in the air from the California fires, whether it's angry birds attacking it or rodents or rats getting into it or poor soil, whether it's me maybe not giving it the best fertilizer or keeping it on the right watering schedule and yet without fail, faithfully, this lemon tree produces beautiful, amazing, and fantastic lemons. So happy 2021. We're looking forward to just watching beautiful things come to life in your life, um, even in the midst of the unknown of 2021. So good morning. Here's some announcements for you. Um, if you're new to the Oceanside Sanctuary, we would love to know you're out there. You can get a hold of us and connect with us and the pastoral team and the staff at the Oceanside Sanctuary website backslash contact, and that'll put you in touch with our team. And they would love to just say hello and know where you're watching from and how they can help. Uh, coming up on Thursday, January 21st at 6.30 p.m., it's our monthly call and response. It's a monthly scripture study. And this group approaches the Bible study as group dialogue, kind of a refreshing way to approach a Bible discussion. Much like the call and response tradition found in sacred literature, liturgy, and music of all kinds. So we'd love for you to join us on Thursday, January 21st at 6.30 p.m. on the Zoom. More information on the website, it's available uh, under call and response. Um, an update on our mission 2023. A lot of things going on with mission 2023. You've been receiving some updates and some emails. Our newly proposed mission commitment is now posted on the website under mission 2023. And we definitely need your continued feedback on this project. Um, the statement of values of the vision of the mission and priorities for the next three years. Also, mark your calendar for a congregational meeting on January 31st at 10 a.m. to vote on approving this brand new mission commitment. For more information about the mission 2023, you can find it on the website. All the updates are on there right under mission 2023 updates. We want your input. We want your feedback. We want your questions. You'll find it there. We're looking forward to the next three years and looking forward to 2023 at the Oceanside Sanctuary. Uh, Martin Luther King celebration, the MLK celebration is coming up and our brand new anti-racism team invites you to join them for the MLK online celebration. It's going to be hosted by the Pacific Southwest region of the Disciples of Christ on January 31st at 5 p.m. A lot of things coming up in the month of January. You can RSVP on the website under the calendar. Once again, that's January 31st at 5 p.m. And finally, uh, Oceanside Sanctuary is a nonprofit organization that needs our support, needs our help to continue to impact and provide 
the resources that this community needs. And Oceanside Sanctuary can only do that through and with us. And so we would love to give as you are able to, and you can find more information about how to give and why to give uh, all on the website, theoceansidesanctuary.org backslash give. Miss seeing you guys continue to stay safe and healthy. We look forward to seeing you soon. Have a great week.